All right. How are we, Christ Church? Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be a fun morning. All right. Um, my name is Landon. Um, I'm one of the, the covenant members here at Christ Church. Um, and let me just say it is an unexpected privilege that I get to be standing in front of you today. Um, this time yesterday, I had no idea that I was going to be up here preaching. But uh, as is the time of year that it is, uh, illness and sickness and all the fun things just kind of run rampant through everybody. So it hit me earlier in the week um, and I was contacted yesterday and given the opportunity to stand in front of you today. So uh, I consider it a, an honor to be here. Um, so when I was contacted yesterday, I was, I was thinking through my mind, what, what do I want to do? Um, I'm a Bible teacher at a local Christian school. And so I kind of have in my back pocket, I have messages and things that I, that I can pull from if I, if I need to in a pinch, but, um, something that has really impacted me and my family over the last several years is just being a part of this church. And so specifically what it is that has impacted my family in such a way is this idea of covenants. Um, I grew up in uh, a Southern Baptist church. I grew up with uh, a parent who took me to church every opportunity that we had. And so I grew up hearing the stories of these covenants in the Old Testament. And so I, I, I know what a covenant is, but as I grew into an adult and started to have my own family, uh, the true understanding of what covenant is was kind of lost to me. And so uh, when we came to this church eight years ago, it was uh, just something that really started to speak into my life and more than my life, but into the life of my family. And so it's been a, an amazing thing to grow uh, as a part of this church for the last several years. And so uh, covenants have an important role. And that's Ultimately, what I want to talk about with you guys this morning, um, and specifically from a passage that jumped out at me in, in a way that I never expected it to. So in, in my Bible classes at the, the school that I work at, uh, we were working through the concepts of Christ as a prophet and a king and a priest. And so as we were working through, I was working through with my students, the understanding of what, what it is for Christ to be a greater priest or the great high priest, uh, the curriculum that we were using through this random obscure passage in. Uh, and I say random and obscure because it, I, I can honestly say, I don't think it's something that I had ever really studied before. And so it really just kind of sank in, in a way that I never had fully expected it to. And it, it comes out of kind of one of those books in the Old Testament that you maybe you've heard the name, but it's not something that you just automatically say, I wonder what I'm going to read today. Let's flip over to the book of Zechariah. So if you have your Bibles with us with you this morning, uh, that's what we're going to be. We're going to be in the book of Zechariah this morning. Um, if you're not really familiar with where that is, if you go to Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament and back up about two books, then you will find the book of Zechariah. <coughs> but. Before we get into the text, I want to just clarify a couple of things, because being that it's an Old Testament prophetic book, there's some challenges that are associated with it that we got to make sure that we're we're clear on. So the first thing is understanding um, that this is a book of prophecy. And when I say that word prophecy, I think it often triggers some Western 
inadequacies in how we understand it. Um, in, in talking with my students and my classes, and if I, I say, we're gonna, what is it, when you hear the word prophet, when you hear the word prophecy, what does it make you think of? <clears throat> and automatically, the first thing out of their mouth is telling the future. And, and, and that's a twisted and, and misunderstood way of understanding prophets and prophecy as simply being future telling of something that's coming later. And the reality is when you study the prophets, all the prophets simply are, are an individual that God has called on their life, given them a word from himself, and then instructed them to go and share that word with individual or other individuals. So when we we studied this challenging text of prophecy, we need to make sure that we are understanding that God is simply trying to communicate with us through the writings of what Zechariah is speaking on. And so that's the main thing. Make sure that you're understanding that God is speaking through what we're going to be reading today. The second thing to pay attention to is the idea of context. So when we read the book of Zechariah, we are not reading it through the lens of what can we pull out of it strictly for ourselves, but what was the context through which Zechariah was writing the prophecy that he wrote. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, what's happening in the book of Zechariah, <coughs> excuse me, is that this is occurring about 500 BC. And specifically what's happening at this time is that the nation of Israel is returning from a place of exile. And the exile of Israel happened as a result of Israel constantly breaking their covenant with God that he established through Moses. And the Mosaic covenant was, uh, was what was regarded as a conditional covenant, meaning that God said, if you obey me, if you follow my law, if you follow my commands, then you will receive blessing. But if you fail to, to follow my law, to follow my commands, then you will have curses. And so over generations, this back and forth of, of following his law, but then failing to follow his law, God ultimately allowed Israel to be taken captive by surrounding nations and taken out of the promised land that he had made with, <coughs> with Abraham through the Abrahamic covenant. And so over uh, several generations, God has finally heard the cries of the people of Israel that are scattered throughout the ancient world, through Babylonia and Syria and Persia. And he allows them to finally start returning to the promised land. There are other prophets and there are other stories in the Old Testament that you may be familiar with that are happening about this same time. If you're familiar with the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was an individual who was called, <coughs> excuse me, was called by God to return to Israel to help rebuild the wall surrounding Jerusalem. And so the call on Nehemiah's life was a call to rebuild protection and to show the protection that God was promising. If you're familiar with the book of Ezra, Ezra was a priest that was called back to Jerusalem and was challenged by God to rebuild the temple and not just rebuild the temple, but to reintroduce scripture and the words of God and the law back into the hearts of the individuals in Israel. And so Zechariah fits 
in this picture of what is happening in the return to Israel where God is reestablishing all of these elements with the people of Israel. And so Zechariah is a prophet who's an encouragement to the nation of Israel to repent and to renew their covenant with God. And as a part of this renewal, he's also going to introduce a renewed hope in a Messiah. Because at this point in Israel, having been returned after being gone for generations, (coughs) hope in the promise of a Messiah has been lost. And so what's a Messiah? Well, Messiah is just a Hebrew word. It just means anointed one. But we see the idea of a Messiah being promised by God all the way back in Genesis chapter three. So in Genesis 3.15, after the fall of, of man. Oh, thank you. <clears throat> yeah, I had to, I was sick at the beginning of the week, so I'm still getting over it myself. Um, anyway, yes, let's get there. Okay, so. So Genesis 3.15, God promises at the fall of Adam and Eve, the fall of man, the sin that enters the world, God promises that he's going to send a Messiah, someone, an anointed one who's going to fix that relationship. And so there's some, our our church has some really good resources. Stuart has, Pastor Stuart has done a great job of illustrating the meta-narrative or the big picture of this from Genesis 3.15 in the fall all the way to the reconciliation that we find in the person and work of Jesus. So if you're, if you're familiar, if, if you're interested, I highly encourage you to go find them on YouTube, past sermons and things. Stuart does a good job with that. So with that being said, let's jump into the text that we're going to be looking at this morning. So we want to make sure that we're keeping in mind that this is prophetic. There are going to be some challenges to it. I think you'll see when we get there, there's some interesting things that go on. But then we also want to keep in mind the context that God is trying to reestablish his covenant with his people. And he's trying to show them this Messiah figure is coming. All right. So we're going to be in Zechariah chapter three today. Now, in the book of Zechariah, there there are ultimately there are nine visions that God gives to Zechariah. We're going to be really just focusing on the third one today. I'm sorry, the fourth one in chapter three. So if you have your Bibles, Zechariah chapter three, if you would follow along with me, we'll have the the text on the screen behind me as I'm speaking. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, 
then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are, who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, <coughs> declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Would y'all pray with me as we get started this morning? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the covenant and the promises that you so graciously give us. Lord, I pray that this is not my words. I pray that, that this would be your words communicated to us all here today. Guide and direct and give wisdom and understanding as we walk, walk through a, maybe a challenging text, Lord, but ultimately your word. And let us see your grace and mercy in it. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So I hope as I was reading that, that you picked up on a few things that maybe sparked your interest a little bit. Probably some interesting things. If you picked up on the seven eyes on a rock, maybe that's something that jumped out at you. Or maybe hearing the story of, of Joshua standing before God with dirty robes. Maybe that's something that jumped out at you. But here, here's what I want to do this morning. I really just want to walk verse by verse through this and try to pull apart the pieces of it and, and see what Zechariah was trying to communicate in reestablishing this covenant with the people of Israel and helping communicate to the people exactly what this covenant is for and what God does with it. <clears throat> so right off the bat in verse one, then, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. So we have to ask ourselves, who's Joshua? Well, uh, when I read this at first, I thought Joshua may be a reference to Joshua, who was the military leader of, of Moses, who helped bring Israel into the promised land after Moses passed away. But if you do a little study in this, this is actually not that Joshua. This is Joshua, who was a high priest that we see him show up in the book of Ezra, that as Israel is returning and Ezra is helping rebuild the temple as Nehemiah is helping re rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Joshua is the high priest who is help, helping to lead the people on the spiritual front. And so Joshua being the high priest, what was the responsibility of the high priest? Well, like I talked about with regard to prophecy and prophets, a prophet is simply an individual, if you remember, who speaks to the people on behalf of what he's received from God. And a priest kind of is the reverse of that. And so what the priest's responsibility was to be is to be a representative to God on behalf of the people. So the people would come to the priest and the priest would go and stand one day a year in what was called the Holy of Holies and present the sins of the people before God. And so when we see this vision that Zechariah is writing about, that's exactly what's happening. We cannot look and understand that the person of Zechariah is simply as an individual. We have to look at the person of Zechariah as being a representative of the people before God. So John, then, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Who is the angel of the Lord? Um, 
This, this phrase, angel of the Lord, shows up many times throughout the Old Testament. And looking back on it with hindsight and, and the day that we are today, uh, we can see that this is a representative that we know as Christ. And, and I'll show you when we get to a little bit further down in the text, I'll show you exactly where the connection can be made that this angel of the Lord is Jesus. But right now, we see that Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord. And who's there with him? And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So what I want you to picture in your mind as you're reading this introductory verse to chapter three, picture a courtroom. And so you have uh, Joshua, the high priest, the representative of the people standing before God. And right there with him is Satan. Now, Satan is just a title. Satan means the accuser. So you see that Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And so Satan is there with Joshua before God to accuse him. And if you're familiar with other Old Testament passages, this maybe sounds very similar to the book of Job. The book of Job opens with Satan standing in heaven with God. And God looks at Satan and says, have you considered my servant Job? He's righteous and upstanding. And Satan looks at God and what does he do? He accuses. Well, of course he's righteous and upstanding because of all the blessings that you give him. If you take all that stuff away, he would curse you and turn away from you. And so we see similar pictures throughout the Old Testament of Satan accusing. It's a tactic that he uses and it's a very effective tactic. And so... You see Joshua being accused by Satan in front of God. But what is he being accused of? Well, Satan doesn't get a word in this particular passage, but we know that he is being accused of something. And so we'll see in the next verse exactly probably what he's being accused of. But we need to remember Joshua is a representative of the people. He's a representative of the covenant of God's people. And so Satan is not just accusing Joshua. Satan is accusing all of the people of Israel. And knowing that this is happening at a time when they are being returned from exile, they are being accused most likely of their rebellion and constant failures to follow God's law. So we need to make sure that we understand this is not an individual attack and that we're not reading this through the lens of, well, I'm like Joshua. I'm being accused of, of Satan day in, day out. Yes, you as an individual may be, but this is a direct attack, not on an individual, but on a people and a covenant and a promise that God has made. And so it moves on into verse two. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And so right off the bat, we don't actually hear Satan accuse Joshua, but we hear God or the angel of the Lord. Oh, oh, the Lord rebuke you, oh, Satan. So he just he silences him in the courtroom. He has nothing to stand on. He makes it very clear that Satan has no power where he is because he says, The Lord, 
who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. This is another sign that we can see that Joshua is a representative of the people of Israel. And I really like this. It, it kind of is just thrown in here at the end of, it's not thrown in, but at the end of verse two there. But I, you're going to see a connection here. So I want you to remember this part. It says, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? I didn't know what that was. So yesterday when I was digging through and trying to figure out why does it say, is this not a brand? I'm thinking brand of, I don't know, food, clothes, whatever. But no, a brand is a, is a smoldering stick. So think of a, in a fire, you have a stick that has caught on fire, but maybe the fire's gone out. And so it's smoldering there. And so he's referring, God is referring to Israel, to Jerusalem, as a smoldering stick. So it's a stick that's been burned, but he's taken it out of the fire. And I want you to remember that because you're gonna see something a little bit later on that maybe hasn't quite jumped out at you yet. And, I, and that's the connection I, that really jumped out at me as I was studying this. So <clears throat> rebuke you, it's not, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. So here is, Ultimately, the accusation that Satan is making against Joshua and the people. See, the priest was supposed to be a representative to God on behalf of the people. And so if you read the Levitical law, it was up to the priest to purify and cleanse themselves. They were to take countless showers and baths and all kinds of things to clean themselves and to wear pure robes and clothing as they entered into the Holy of Holies because only pure and perfect and clean can stand before a holy, just, and righteous God. And so you see the high priest representing the people standing before God and the angel of the Lord in filthy robes. And so the accusation that Satan is making here is that all of Israel is guilty of being unclean. God has given them a law. God, God has given them commandments to follow, statutes to follow. And he's telling God, look, they're standing in front of you and they're filthy. And so according to the law for the priest, this was the death sentence. He wasn't clean to represent the people before God. <laughs> but we're going to see mercy of who God is show up in this moment because God's already silenced the accuser and then he's gonna make a move. And in verse four, this is where he says, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments and I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. See, the priest, it was his responsibility to clean himself, to go before God on behalf of the people, but he couldn't. He was filthy. He was broken. He was unclean. And so who does the work to clean the priest? angel of the Lord. It was not anything that the priest could do on his own. It took the angel of the Lord to dress him in clean robes. And so 
this is the passage here where we get, kind of get a glimpse of who this angel of the Lord might be. Because it says, but behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you. Iniquity is just another word for guilt. So the guilt that Joshua is holding as he stands there in being filthy and unclean before a holy and righteous God, God is going to take the guilt away. And we see this picture carried out in the New Testament in Mark chapter two. And starting in verse four, this is Jesus performing a miracle. And uh, you'll see that there is a conflict that happens between Jesus and the Pharisees at this time. And I think it provides a, a, clarif- a clarifying picture as to what's happening in Zechariah. And this is in Mark chapter two, verse four. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. So there was a man who was paralyzed and his friends were so desperate to have him healed that they climbed up on a roof, dug a hole in it and lowered him in front of Christ in order to be healed. But Jesus doesn't heal him. What does he say? Son, your sins are forgiven. Your guilt is forgiven. Your iniquity is forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there and questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So in Zechariah, we see Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord putting clean garments and a clean turban on him and taking away his iniquity. This prophecy is a clear picture of Christ and what Christ does and has done for us. And then Zechariah moves on to hear more from this angel of the Lord or to hear more from Jesus. He says, and the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. <coughs> Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. God is reaffirming his covenant with his people. If you remember what I had said when I started, there was a covenant that God made with Moses where God gave Moses the law and said, if you follow these commands, you will receive blessing. But if you fail to follow these commands, you will receive curses. And so God is reaffirming that covenant with the people here. Did you hear it? If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge. Follow the commands and the laws of God. Then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you the right of access. So if you follow the commands of God, he gives you worship. You shall rule my house, have charge of my courts. He will give you justice. This is something that only God can give, but to the people, in the covenant, 
there's a condition. You have to follow what God has put in front of you. This if-then statement requires accountability on behalf of the people. And he continues into verse eight. Hear now, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. So now there's going to be a shift that happens. We have this picture of a courtroom happening where Joshua, the high priest, is standing before God and he's given a reaffirmation of the covenant. And now God is going to show Joshua and Zechariah or show Zechariah through Joshua this reaffirmation of this Messiah that's coming. And so this is a, a shift into a messianic prophecy. And so we see, again, he affirms, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. So Joshua and the people who are in the courtroom with him before the angel of the Lord are a symbol. They're a sign that represents the people of God. And God says, I will bring my servant the branch. Now remember back to the very beginning in verse one, where he said, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And if you remember, that brand was a, a stick pulled from the fire that is not untouched. It's been burned. It has been affected by the fire, but God plucked it out. And now God is telling the people who are a symbol of the people of Israel. Behold, I will bring my servant, the, capital B, branch. Do you see it? He saved a smoldering stick that represented the people. And he's going to send the branch to the people. The branch is not the same little bee branch that was plucked out of the fire back in verse one. But this is a fulfillment, capital B, of the promise that God made. So this is the first picture that we see Zechariah see as the Messiah as a branch. But hold on, it keeps going. In verse nine, for behold, on the stone. So now we've changed. So now no longer is God sending a branch, but now there's a stone set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes. This is the fun part of prophecy, right? I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So this picture that is being shown, these signs and symbols that are being shown to Zechariah, you have a branch, capital B branch, and you have a stone set before Joshua. So what's, what, what's the stone? Well, Ephesians 2 gives us a, a picture of this in the New Testament. This is Paul speaking to the church at Ephesus. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. And him you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there's a branch. It's Christ. There's a stone. It's Christ. Well, okay, so there's a stone, but it's got seven eyes. What's up with that? Don't overthink it. When you see the number seven throughout scripture, think all the way back to the creation account. How many days did God create? Seven days. The number seven throughout scripture is simply a representation of God's completed work, God's perfect work. That's why if you hear people talk about the mark of the beast, it's always usually associated with the number six because it's an incomplete seven. It's not perfected. It's incomplete. So seven is an idea of perfection and completeness and the eyes being complete and total vision of Christ over everything, his complete and total providence over his people, his complete and total protective care over his people. And not only that, seven eyes on the stone, but the stone is engraved. There's permanence and engraving on stones. Just think about the stones that people find scattered throughout the world from ancient civilizations. They carved it in stone because of the permanence and the finality that comes with being carved into stone. So you have this stone, you have this branch, you have these eyes and the engraving that all point to Christ. And then the last part of verse 10 says, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. The entire guilt of an entire people and an entire land removed in a single day. If that doesn't show us the significance of the crucifixion of Christ, I don't know what else does. In a single day, our guilt was taken away. And then I love how chapter three closes up because this brings it back to this idea of covenant being not just about the individuals, but about the people. He says, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. If that's not a picture of the great commission, a call of Christ to go into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I don't know what is. Christ has taken away our iniquity corporately and our response should be to go to our neighbor and bring them into that same peace and freedom. So what do we do with this passage, with this prophecy that was 20 that was given to Zechariah 2,500 years ago. We've seen <coughs> how it points to Christ and where we are 2,000 years, 2,500 years removed from that. What do we do with it? How can it transform us? How can it shape us and affect how we interact with the world around us? I have two just very, very brief points and then we'll be done. Number one, the accuser's tactics haven't changed. 
You can look at the very beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden. The accuser lies and accuses. And we have the tendency within us to play the victim, right? Where else would the phrase, the devil made me do it, come from, if not from a place of victimhood? I didn't have the choice. The devil made me do it. But in reality, what we see in Scripture with Adam and Eve, with Job, with what we see in Joshua in his vision, is that this is what Satan does. He accuses, and it's an effective weapon. He makes us feel guilt and shame so that we pursue and seek out happiness through temporary things. And we reject who God made us to be. But there's no true accusation with Christ when he's the judge. A good example in the New Testament of this is the woman who was brought to Christ, caught in adultery from John chapter 8. Let me read that for us. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, (coughs) this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and rose on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin, no more. Do you see the picture? Do you see Christ fulfilling this vision that was given 500 years before to the prophet Zechariah of Joshua, the high priest, standing condemned before God? And God saying, I got it. Take off the dirty robes, put on the clean ones. Go forth from here clean, free of guilt, free of shame. That's what Christ does with the woman. Go and sin no more. And see, it's not just just that she's able to just walk away at that point. There is still an accountability that he gives. Sin no more. Christ does not condemn because Christ covers the iniquity. Christ covers the guilt and shame. And the second point, God honors his covenants. See, the the Mosaic covenant was a problem for the people of Israel. It was a hard one. See, if you look at the other covenants you see in the uh, Abrahamic covenant, what did God promise? He promised to give Abraham offspring and land and blessing. And there was really no, nothing that Abraham had to do. When you read the Davidic covenant, 
God promised David, I will send somebody from your family who will be a king and sit on the throne forever. There was not much that David had to do. But when you get to the Mosaic Covenant, it's hard. God's commands, God's laws. But God shows in this moment, in this picture, in this vision that he gives to Zechariah, that he is the one who will fulfill the covenant. And we hear from Christ in the New Testament that he doesn't come to abolish the law. He comes to fulfill it. He came to complete it. So that everyone who believes in Christ can be cleansed of their iniquity. And then what are we to do? We take that same hope, we take that same peace and blessing that we receive from Christ. And what do we do? We take it to our neighbor. We bring our neighbors under that same covenant that Christ fulfills in the work that he does for us on the cross. See, Christ brings life to everyone. Whether it be through the image of a branch, through a stone, the vine, or the fig tree. Christ brings life through his covenant. And then as my prayer for us today, that we not forget that. And then we understand that that promise is corporate. Yes, it affects us individually. But we need to understand that those accusations that are hurled at us that affect our family, well, you're a, you know, you're a horrible dad, you're a horrible mom, those accusations that come at us day in, day out. They're not true accusations for those that find hope and peace in his covenant. Would you pray with me? Father, as we think deeply and meditate on your word, Lord, I would pray that our understanding of who you are and your covenant would sit deep down, that we would understand the blessings that you give us, the grace and mercy that you give us, and how you showed that to Zechariah through the image of the prophet Joshua. Lord, let us not forget that. Let us find rest in that. Let us find life in that. And let that be a hope that gives life to not just us, but to all of those that we can bring to ourselves, or not to ourselves, to yourself, through your covenant. In your name we pray, amen.